G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you um, taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, though. We'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast or even Spotify and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, and we'd really appreciate a few moments of your time to leave us a review. So I'm delighted to say that joining uh, Brian and myself in the studio, we have Professor Dan Chan, who's the uh, head of department here of Clinical Science and Services to the Royal Vet College um, and uh, been, been my boss for about 11 years but anyway um, and uh, we're delighted to have him in the studio and we thought we'd talk to him about anticoagulants although we could talk to him about a number of different uh, different things um, so thank you very much Dan for, for coming uh, here to have a chat with us. No it's my pleasure I'd um, love to talk about um, some of these things including anticoagulants and what we've been working on. So, you, so you're part of the, uh, I came up with a curative sort of guidelines that was uh, recently published in, in JVEC this this year. Could, could you maybe explain what what that is and yeah, how they so, came about? Yeah, of course. So obviously we wanted to look at are we following best evidence in our recommendations to use anticoagulants? So we came up with the idea of developing a consensus guideline. So curative is actually the acronym for consensus on the rational use of antithrombotics in veterinary critical care. So what the aim of that initiative was to get a collection of experts, so people that were working on the field, to sit down and agree definitions uh, and parameters that guide uh, the use of anticoagulants. So we decided that we needed to take this uh, idea and separate different components. So we created five different domains uh, with this initiative. And one of the things that we wanted to be sure is everyone understood what was a population that required any anticoagulant therapy. So that was the first domain, defining populations at risk. Then we actually wanted to make sure that when we encountered a disease that led to formation of blood clots, that we were treating it appropriately. So that's where the second domain, where is rational therapeutic use, that's focusing on are we using the class of agents that are appropriate? For example, should we be using anti platelet drugs or should we use anticoagulants? Well, it depends on the disease itself, so we wanted to be sure that we had those definitions right. Then we actually looked at the protocols because we found that there was such variation in how to use heparin, how to use aspirin, and we said we needed to sit down and look at the evidence that led us to come up with the protocols. Then we looked at monitoring. So if you put a patient on a specific treatment, what's the best way to figure out whether you need to titrate it? Uh, and we discussed the limitations of it. And finally, one of the challenges that we found was that nobody really knew when to stop therapy. So if you have an animal with a disease, at what stage do you actually say they no longer needed the therapy? And when we were particularly looking at the topic, one of the things that we actually encountered is in people when they had to do surgery, 
um, they needed to come up with guidelines about when to stop anticoagulants so you can have a safe surgery. And so we kind of dabbled in that as well, looking at the evidence. So, so these are sort of the, the reasons we wanted to create this consensus statement, but we also wanted to make sure that our opinions were backed by whatever evidence there was. So a lot of what we did was actually create different groups of people that would review anything and everything that fell within that um, sort of remit of those domains. And then we came up with standardized questions. And we use what we call the PICO format, which looks at populations, looks at the interventions, looks at um, the comparative group and the outcomes. So that's what PICO stands for. And every single question in the guideline is framed with those four components. And then they could go and answer those questions with the evidence. And then we came up with grading the quality of the evidence because we wanted to make sure that whatever recommendation we had, had a grade attached to it. So then people can say, that's high level evidence that's guiding that recommendation. And sometimes the evidence was quite poor. So it's a suggestion and we actually gave the grade so people can know that a lot of that recommendation came from expert opinion rather than true evidence. So that's sort of the framework of, of how we came about with these guidelines. So in that, in that process, Dan, that's very uh, informative. So were there, were there, was it easy to, to come up with that structure of those sort of five, five questions that you wanted to answer? And was there, was it, I suppose with, with everything in, in the veterinary world, there's, there's kind of uh, limitations of of clinical evidence and, and was was that one of a challenge yeah that was a, a huge challenge because when we start looking at what's published because um, one of the things that we want to make sure is that the recommendation followed from the group that it was tested on so if you had for example you wanted to look at patients that had thrombosis were those subjects experimental models or natural disease? Because it felt um, that if you have most evidence from experimental models, that that may not translate to what happens in, in, in sort of natural disease. Perfect example is heartworm disease. So heartworm disease is well known for causing thrombosis, but most of the evidence is experimental models of heartworm disease. Very little evidence this comes from the naturally occurring, but the recommendations are always targeting the naturally occurring disease. So we were very conscious of that, and those are definitely the limitations. And we try to build in the guidelines when there are limitations or gaps in knowledge where we can separate out, like, this is what we think is the best protocol. However, most of the evidence comes from experimental other species rather than the uh, species of interest really for that question so we have to go through a lot of that in a lot of our questions whether the evidence came from the appropriate population and another example is aspirin there are hundreds of studies on aspirin but not many on clinical cases so we do factor in if the evidence came from the population of interest and so with the uh, population at risk, was there, was there any sort of surprises with what, what patients are, are at 
are at risk? Well, one of the, uh, I think the domain one where population risk actually turned out to be one of the more controversial ones. Because halfway through, we kind of made a realization that we were, we named the disease already out of bias from the experts. So I'll give you a, a better example. So no one uh, doubted that IMHA would be a disease that we need to look at uh, because it's a well-known disease to cause thrombosis. Same thing with protein-losing nephropathy. We encounter that cats with arterial thromboembolism so those were the easy ones but then what there was I guess a bias in that when you look at retrospective studies of animals with thrombosis that a lot of them had liver disease or pancreatitis neoplasia so then we decided to say oh we need to look at those diseases to see if that increases the risk but what we realized is we were looking at evidence that was already biased because they all had clots. So is it fair to say that pancreatitis, for example, increases the risk of thrombosis when the evidence that we're looking at, all pancreatitis cases had thrombosis because that's how they were identified. What we needed to say is let's look at all pancreatitis cases and how many of those had thrombosis to see if there's a definite risk. And similarly with liver disease, there were um, many cases of portal vein thrombosis that had liver disease. So the question is, did they get the, you know, venous thrombosis because they had liver disease, or is it we just looked at animals that had thrombosis? Um, uh, so pulmonary thromboembol is another one. Most of those studies come from postmortems, so they all die from it. So then it's not surprising that it's a high mortality rate com complication. So we do have to be careful about what is the evidence we're looking at, because to say that animals that are on steroids, that have cancer, sepsis, show up on any retrospective study of postmortems. So we realize that some of these diseases that were coming up haven't been fully assessed of how much they increase the risk. We just know that when you look at those with clots, they show up as maybe 20% of the population. So they're probably a higher risk than a patient that doesn't have it, but we can't really quantify that. So when, when you looked at some disease processes, Dan, so such like IMHA, did you think about whether they had more uh, more documented arterial or venous thrombus is, and then see about what might be appropriate to, to treat that? Or did you go about it a, a, different, a different way? Yeah, so for all the diseases that we looked at, so we looked at IMHA, uh, proton-losing nephropathy, pancreatitis, steroid therapy, hypogenocorticism, neoplasia, sepsis, and feline heart disease. So for every one of those, we also looked at whether or not they had arterial versus venous because and some animals might have both types. And we wanted to make sure that the recommendation for therapy, for example, made sense. And some of it is, is uh, based on where the clot was. So feline aortic thromboembolism is an arterial disease and what we know about the physiology of those clots is that they form and they're platelet rich so antithrombotics that are targeting platelets is typically what we go for um, 
but we don't have a lot of evidence because what you really need to do is dissect and do analysis of the clots themselves to find out if they're fibrin rich which means that they're uh, from activation of the clotting factors to get fibrin or whether they are platelet rich and some of it we don't have the full evidence so IMHA, one of the most classical diseases we associate with pulmonary thromboembolism, um, is not fully answered because in people, those come from distal sites. So normally immobile people with cardiac disease, for example, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, have a thrombosis that originate from the iliacs. We don't see that in animals. They actually are just in the lungs. So are there emboli or they're actually forming in situ? So maybe they're forming right in the pulmonary vasculature, which is different than what happens in people. So there's still a lot we need to do, but from the evidence we have with that disease, they're forming in the lungs, they're in the venous system, so anticoagulants make sense. We do have, however, evidence that both platelets and clotting factors activated in IMHA. So we made a recommendation that may be sensible to treat with both classes. So we see in some of our guidelines that you can treat with anticoagulants in addition to an antiplatelet drug. Whereas opposed to some diseases, we see no point in recommending uh, a different class of drugs. And so if we, if we stick with, uh, say, IMHA for, for an example, so, so with that sort of um, treatment of going for, for both classes, was it, again, quite complex to think about, say, dosages and, and monitoring? Because I suppose, in, you know, in, you can look in any, uh, um, you know, plums or formulary or whatever, and, and there's going to be a massive range of, of, those drugs to, of those drugs to give. And did was that quite difficult to get consensus or yeah, is it always absolutely. going to be based on monitoring and maybe we can touch on the complexities yeah. of that so first what i had to do is where is the evidence that supported those dose ranges in the first place so we dug deep to find out where they had come from because there's a difference between efficacy and safety so some dose ranges were what it, what is safe how high can you go where others target an efficacy point. And again, we are challenging that because the most sort of gold standard efficacy target is an anti-10A level of activity. So that's a test that we use to figure out how much of factor 10 can you inactivate. And in people, they have a target of 0.3. So that level of activity is sort of their golden point. So their drug therapies are aimed at getting that level of anti-10A activity. Now, we have that ability to measure that in animals, but it's not very widely available. And the reason for that is, in order to run that test, you need pool plasma of dogs that are normal. And that's the limitation uh, for our labs that they will have to have a supply of normal dog plasma. Um, and in the U.S., they have that supply, so they can design their assay to get that. So currently, we would have to send samples to North America or other countries because they can get that monitoring. But obviously, that's not very practical when you're deciding on a day-to-day -day basis 
So some of the protocols that um, were more, um, I guess, titrated to a particular level had daily anti-10A activity where they would increase the ins- the uh, heparin dose sometimes to extremely high levels, almost 500 to 600 units per kilogram, where we wouldn't dream of doing that if you had no monitoring capability. So that is a huge limitation in the, the best sort of um, circumstances are not widely available. Uh, so we made recommendations that if you have the capability of monitoring, then you can titrate to maybe a continuous rate infusion of heparin. But if you don't have that, then you might have to choose safer alternatives that doesn't rely on monitoring. So the best example using low-weight molecular heparin, where monitoring is not per se required because it has a much more predictable level of activity. So you can give a dose that that we recommend without having to worry, do I have to bump that up or down? And how do we know those doses are um, reliable? Well, fortunately, there were studies that measure anti-10A activity with low-weight molecular heparin, and it's a lot more reliable. For unfractured heparin, there's so much individual variability that it's best used when you can monitor. And we looked at the studies that use the activated prothrombin, thromboplastin time, the APTT, to guide that. And you know, classically, the textbook says that 150% above baseline is your therapeutic target. That's because in some studies, you can correlate that with the anti 10A activity. Although more recent studies have shown that that's not really reliable. So the targeting your heparin therapy, your unfractionated to NAPTT is not going to be as good. You might be uh, actually off the efficacy, although you're in a safe zone. Because obviously, if you are uh, 150 to 200 percent over your APTT, you might not be bleeding spontaneously. Um, but if you can titrate your heparin to an efficacy point, then you're going to be exceeding the 150 to 300 units per kilogram sort of dose range that's quoted. So it depends on your resources whether or not you can push something to a really high level, still knowing that you're trying to achieve this anti-10A level of activity. So, so with that in mind, do you think that in the UK when we can't look at anti-10A activity that we should we should probably use um, fractionated heparin um, in, in, that, in, that, in that example? Well, one of the things that uh, we actually looked at is the up-and-coming anticoagulants. So um, the disadvantage of, of using heparin has always been that it's by injection only. Um, and therefore, you, you de- the hospital has to continue that therapy or the client has to give injections. So one of the major developments is oral anticoagulants, so rivaroxabam, which basically we like to refer to as an oral form of heparin because it targets similarly the same clotting factors, but it's oral. And the good thing about that, the predictability of efficacy is actually quite good. So we have looked at studies that titrated 
the dose against anti-10A, and it is pretty reliable. So one alternative to using heparin altogether is to actually use oral varroxabam um, because the doses that we sort of found uh, did give a reliable level of activity. So I think that as people get more comfortable with it, and we have additional studies to make sure it's safe, we probably should be moving towards that until we can get reliable anti-10A monitoring activity. Do, do you think we're also going to have to know about like how the disease progresses as well, or or just to focus on the <clears throat> on the actions of of those drugs? Well, well, the thing that we could look at is. Um, how the requirements change over disease progression. For example, we have studies to show that if you measure some factors of hypercoagulability, so we use the thromboelastograph, for example, as a way to quantify hypercoagulability, those remain abnormal for at least a month after the animal is in remission from IMHA. So and we know that animals that are taken off anticoagulants prematurely, so within a few weeks of remission, they re- recur. And so trying to figure out when do the animals no longer need it is the next step. And there's very little information because most studies stop at about a month post-discharge. So we don't know how long they need anticoagulant therapy for. We said something like when the disease is under control, which is true, but not as helpful because we may not know whether an animal is in true remission. All we know is their PCV is is stable rather than they're no longer under the influence of an aberrant immune system. See, when thinking about adding um, uh, antiplatelet drugs into the mix as well, I suppose in the, in the same ways, do we know how effective they are at certain concentrations? Do they need to be titrated as well, or is that still a, a bit of a grey area? Or even how do we how do we look at function of uh, of the efficacy, sorry, of those drugs? Yeah, I think you raise a very good point. Most people are happy to use antiplatelet because they have a higher safety factor. So there's not many animals that have overt complications from being an antithrombotic. Um, like aspirin or clopidogrel. So they are, um, they're convenient because they're oral. They don't require any, any monitoring. So when we looked at, okay, how do you know that they're doing what they're supposed to do? There's limited ability to do that. So there are um, usually technology that you have to have at a referral level institution to actually measure platelet, I guess, inhibition. So there are a couple of classical techniques, so agogometry is one, and most of them, the gold standard is sort of optical um, agogometry, um, but those are hard to um, manage because they require a lot of blood, because you have to standardize the blood sample to a stable or a standard level of platelet concentration. So if you have an animal that has IMHA but also thrombocytopenia, you got to take a large blood sample to make sure that you can concentrate it to 200,000 platelets per mil. And that manipulation requires, can change the function itself. So we actually had a device that didn't rely on concentrating the level of platelet numbers. 
and there's an electrical impedance one that's in the whole blood sample, and you get a, a an idea of what's happening to the platelet function compared to baseline. What we don't have is a target like we do for antitany activity. Um, some recommendations is if you can inhibit 50% of baseline, you're in a therapeutic zone. What we don't have is whether that translating to fewer blood clots. So I think we are still off the knowing what level of antiplatelet drugs you need because we don't have a good measure of a target. But most people prefer it because it's safer. Um, you know, occasionally you have GI disturbance, but they're not going to cause a major complication. As opposed to putting a dog on warfarin, if you suddenly overdose so they have a change, those animals could have catastrophic complications. So most of our guidelines staying away from using Coumadin as a effective anticoagulant because dosing is very difficult and the safety margin is very low. So moving with the, the uh, antithrombotics and maybe into into maybe cats with uh, aortic thromboembolism. So was there? Did your group think about different recommendations and say that the uh, the fat cat trial or or was it similar or, or aligned? As no, I mean so we treated every disease the same in that we went through the same process. So first, defining is it makes sense to use anti anti platelet or anticoagulant. So the fat cat study was only looking uh, at aspirin versus clopidogrel. So it did not look at heparin. Um, speaking to the investigators of fat cat study, they were actually thinking maybe they should have added another arm to that study and look at anticoagulants as well or concurrent anticoagulant with antiplatelet. Because according to the fat cat study, clopidogrel was better than aspirin but is maybe clopidogrel plus heparin better yet? So that's the part that hasn't been done. There's a, a current study ongoing looking at viroxaban in addition to clopidogrel. And I think that that might be a, a great sort of breakthrough if we could identify a safe and effective therapy to prevent recurrence. Challenging that is it's a terrible disease. So many of the cats that survive a first episode of a thrombus may die of heart failure. And so it's really hard to study the efficacy in terms of anticoagulation when you still have the underlying problem being sort of permanent. You can't be cured of heart disease, so the risk is always there. Um, and that remains a challenge to know, can we improve the efficacy of anticoagulation when we don't know if the sort of period of time that they're stable is due more to the heart disease rather than their sort of coagulation status. And it's, it's part, I suppose we could, we could probably touch on a few other diseases, but I'm just wondering as part of this process, are you, are you asking the, the greater community maybe these are the things we need to look at now or are you guys taking on that? responsibility and thinking okay well we need to maybe divvy this up and have a look at these disease processes or these things in that in those disease processes or is that still just too big a 
No, question. it is. I mean, it's a it's a good question. And so we came up with our, I guess, long term plan and what we wanted to do. So if you actually read the guidelines, we are we're pretty upfront about whether we are confident in the evidence, whether they need further work. So we actually identify gaps. And we did not pretend to say that we will fill those gaps, but we wanted to highlight to the scientific community, those are the areas that we still need investigation. And we're hoping that the scientific community will pick up those questions that remain unanswered. What we are doing in the sort of second iteration of curative is expanding a little bit on the disease, you know, populations at risk. So for example, we're going to look at liver disease. We're going to look at um, actually medical interventions. So catheters, for example, we all kind of have heard that having an indwelling, indwelling catheter, IV catheter, increases risk of thrombosis, but we actually haven't really dug into that evidence. Um, with the sort of up-and-coming extracorporeal therapies, so animals that are getting dialysis, whether they're getting uh, therapeutic plasma exchange, there are at risk, and so we're going to specifically look at those populations. Uh, animals with implants, so whether they have a pacemaker, whether they get a sort of a coil, I mean, part of the purpose of a coil is to form a thrombus. So we're going to look at those parameters. What we're expanding as well, not only the populations at risk, we're also looking at things like thrombolytics, which we stayed away from, but we felt now is the time to use the same process to evaluate the use of thrombolytics for those animals that have a clot and figure out, do we have enough evidence to say what protocol is best to use? Is that on... Going, Dan, is that, yeah, is so that? we actually now at the phase of identifying the the working party for those topics. So we had a call out to the sort of uh, emergency critical care community to say, you know, are you interested in, in participating in this next sort of chapter? And so we have names of people that are signed up to this. And over the next few months, we'll start the process of giving them the tasks giving them the questions to answer um, and go through the process. Um, after we actually get the evidence, there's, uh, we have to formulate the recommendations. And the reason we call it a consensus is actually everyone in the initiative votes on whether or not that statement is true. So with every statement, there is also a number of uh, members that agreed with that statement. So you can actually see how much of a consensus sometimes a hundred percent sometimes is eighty percent consensus and we felt that it's important for people to know that rather than just take a blanket statement that's what the guideline said we actually wanted to have that degree of consensus so that we could say that still needs investigation it's not a hundred percent yet that the community agrees and so that's what we're working on and Obviously, the the group is almost sort of self-selecting of those people that have uh, published in, in areas of, of coagulation and looking in the certain disease processes. And I imagine the majority, if not all of them, are in academic 
referral places. And I just wonder, do, do, does the curative team have an idea about what actually a lot of general practitioners do with these uh, with these diseases, whether people are comfortable giving anticoagulants or like following um, you know previously what's been written in I suppose some emergency books about maybe you could give heparin to an ATE card or whatever. Like is that is that a question that you want to know or 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 how do we work that out? Yeah, I mean. I guess it's a good point. So most of the leads on the domains are academics, but actually a lot of the people that are doing the review of the articles are actually in usually referral practice, but in private practice. And when we actually have the guidelines up for um, consultation, they do go to various listservs um, and meetings for sort of wider input. We haven't looked at the practicalities of applying, although we wanted to make sure, like, for example, when we looked at protocols, we wanted to highlight what were the implications that they needed. So what kind of monitoring would they actually do in practice? And what we also did, we created a separate article that actually was the clinical application because we wanted to be more than just, you know, 63 recommendations without a context. So we published sort of case vignettes, a dog with IMHA, a dog with uh, protein-losing nephropathy, to give that um, clinical aspect about decision-making. So even things like cost came into it. So we were an international group, so we actually got price quotes for the drug therapies the expected course of treatment in various countries. So we did European, North American, Australian price comparisons of the different therapies. And it widely varied in some areas where it was cheaper to do viraxaban than heparin. And also we, we took this second article as an opportunity to engage more with a practitioner because we put it in a context that you know it was a clinical case and how they decided which therapy to use and what were the implications of the practicalities because obviously creating guidelines of gold standard that no one can apply we didn't feel that that was the purpose we wanted to provide practitioners with some evidence-based guidelines and clearly mark what was best evidence and the caveats if you didn't weren't able to follow it. And do you have a, a plan in mind of when you're going to re-review or is that going to depend on when um, there's enough evidence or, or, or do you think, because I'm looking at uh, um, some other say guidelines that have come out, sometimes there can be you know, massive gaps before they are redone and I know it takes a an inordinate amount of time and it's not what anyone is 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 paid for and it's their their interest but still then that it's kind of a time stamp isn't it and things can move on in well even a couple of years but but it have you have you got an idea to when to relook at it or does it yeah. depend on evidence no no so i think with all of these projects they're they're massively time consuming so we actually said that the major revision would occur every five years and i think that that's a standard approach to a lot of these 
uh, massive projects. But what we said we were going to do is the next iteration, which actually will probably be published early to 2021, is that we're going to do an expansion of domain one, which is the populations at risk. And we're going to add another domain looking at thrombolytics. So for the next uh, year or so, that's what we'll be working on. Um, but we're not going to redo all the other domains at the next iteration until about three years from now, where we'll start that process. Because hopefully by then we will have more evidence. And what we're trying to, what we hope is that when we published it, it guided where the research needed to go. Um, now, disappointingly, some of the um, gaps are not areas where there's active research. For example, there were hundreds of papers on aspirin use, but they just stopped. No one's looking at aspirin anymore because it's sort of an old hat. And they're only interested in a very innovative approaches, some of which are not going to be clinically relevant for veterinary species. So if they come up with a therapy in people, but it costs thousands of dollars per treatment, that's not really going to come down the pipeline. So, But that's where the research is, and we didn't think that that was going to be relevant. So some of it will remain difficult until people say, okay, let's do this in, in the veterinary context. But then the numbers of subjects drops dramatically and so those are will continue to be challenges and uh, just to get back to one thing about the you mentioned at the start about the length of time of, of treatment of therapy because it said a lot of studies i mean like even great studies only go to say 30 days follow-up and i know that maybe the standard is 30 60 days and in the uh, in in people but did you was that a struggle coming up with like how long these therapies should go on for and yeah. and how or are there any things that we need to look out for to know whether we can stop yeah one of the things that we actually identified was a difference between a thrombotic risk and a hypercoagulable status because one, it's easier to measure. So we have technology that can measure something that we say is a hypercoagulable risk. So whether we do a thromboelastograph, a TEG, that tells us they're hypercoagulable, that's one measure that's easier to get, rather than the ultimate thrombotic risk, because you can only do that with very long-term studies. And most of the veterinary studies only looked at retrospectively. There are very few studies that follow patients, you know, years after they were diagnosed with a disease to know whether they have recurrence. Now, we have more evidence in block cats for recurrence than we have with recurrence of a blood clot. So we're missing that. We have some that in cats with ATE, but then looking at IMHA, for example, there's only 30-day, 60-day follow-up. And what they're only able to do is maybe do a measure of their hypercoagulable state, but we have nothing to say how long does it take for an animal with IMHA to never need anticoagulant because we don't know, we don't have the measures to say two years after a crisis of IMHA, they still are at risk. We don't think so, but we don't really look. And I think that that's definitely missing. 
but it is important to distinguish our measures of hypercoagulability that is separate from risk of thrombosis because they're not fully associated. So one of the controversies is if you have a patient on chronic steroid therapy, a lot of dermatological patients, for example, if you measure their hypercoagulable status, they're all coming up hypercoagulable. So steroids by itself is a hypercoagulable um, state. But when you look at those patients, how many derm patients come back with PTE? Almost none. So there is a mismatch between the measures of hypercoagulability and actual risk of thrombosis. And that's the part we don't know yet why patients on chronic steroid therapy are not all having thromboembolism, even though that when you measure their coagulation status, they're coming up as hypercoagulable. So still things that we need to look into. Because you always said like coagulation is quite important. I remember a slide that you showed with all the different factors sort of involved. So it's basically like, it, it, are we trying to make it too simple that it is a complicated thing and maybe there's multiple, whether disease factors, genetic factors that are you know, individual factors that are involved with getting uh, with getting clots, with getting yeah, thrombosis. absolutely. One of the I guess one of the major problems if we try to simplify things is probably too much. So we look at a tiny corner of the entire coagulation and anticoagulation system of the body, and we pick out one aspect, fiber information. But there's so many aspects of of physiology that have countering factors. So perhaps the animals that are on steroids are hypercoagulable, but maybe they have a heightened fibrinolytic system that makes them in check. You know, some things that we always think if they have the same disease in one species, it follows the same path. And we know that that's not true. So for example, we have cats with IMHA, but they're not coming up as a high-risk population for thromboembolism. So that's a difference right there in in veterinary sense. And um, so when we make extrapolations from people, we really have to be careful that it may not translate to the same risk. Another clear example is diabetics. In people, they're hypercoagulable and they lose limbs because of thrombosis. We don't see a single animal, a dog or cat, that has that complication. So why is that? Why do they have the same disease process, but they don't have the same complications? Now they say, well, that's because a diabetic person can live to be 70 and a cat only lives a couple of years after diabetes. So maybe it's that. Or maybe they have a different counter uh, coagulation uh, system in place that makes them less likely to thrombose. So until we actually have better tools to look at fibrinolysis and, and the anticoagulant system in the body, I think we're going to be a bit in the dark about how come um, the same disease process behaves differently on a slightly different population or even within individuals in the same population. How come some dogs with IMHA have no complications and they're on a subtherapeutic dose of aspirin and another animal is on clopidogrel, aspirin, and heparin, and still thrombose. So, yeah, we have still a lot of work to do. Well, that's uh, um, that's great. I suppose just just maybe finally, Dan. I know. Thank you very much for your time. But I just wondered whether 
was there anything that jumped out at you in the process that you were not um that you were surprised about like going through this yeah one of the things that we were um grappling with is because we look at what what the guidelines the research is also in people and there is huge disparity on how the same disease behaves in the different species like one clear example is IMHA in people is not a highly thrombo thrombotic disease, but ITP is. So how come people with ITP have thromboembolic complications, but we actually are just wondering whether they are? And so there is, that was quite surprising that when we were reviewing the literature, we would find things that are quite not fitting with what we're seeing. Uh, another one is neoplasia. So in neoplasia in people, their risk of thrombosis and we're either saying we're not clever enough to look for it or it's not showing up in our population so there those were bits of surprises to us about what we assumed was going to be an easy task turned out to be quite different the other one was about how do you quantify risk in a veterinary context because in people they can say your risk of stroke is x and if you are a heavy drinker or smoker, that increases your risk to have a stroke by this amount. We don't even know how to diagnose thromboembolic disease properly. How are we going to come up with these risk uh, estimations? So I, we are so behind in the, our ability. Because sometimes you have a clinical case where it behaves like it has a blood clot. It has no pulse. The, the limb is cold. There is no bleeding from the toenail. And then when you do the diagnostic, they can't find it. And so if you can't trust the diagnostics to find an obvious clot, how are we to say that we're going to measure and manipulate their risk of developing further clots? So there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dan. That's, uh, that's fantastic. And hopefully um, we can get you back in the, in the studio uh, to talk about further more about this or, or, uh, um, or indeed any other topic. So thank you very much, Dan. And thank you, for your, uh, thank you for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a, a five-star review, that would be great. Um, and tell your friends, vet friends, or any other friends, we, we don't care. And we'll place some show notes and place some links to the, uh, to, the, to the curative paper that Dan is referring to on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.